You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Let us head into our scripture in Luke 14 today. Feel free to turn there. You can follow it on the screen. This is Jesus. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brother and his sister, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower... Does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile, is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord, these are some of the most difficult, anxious words <laughs> that we hear. The, the burden of this kind of cost to follow you does not register well within our own hearts. And so, Lord, we're praying that your spirit would come today and that you would convict our hearts, that you would help us to see the joy that comes with a faith that costs us everything. Lord, we come in here today full of opportunities where we have not served you well, where we've not spoken of you well, where we have fallen short of your standard and your grace for us. So, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for those things. Help us to leave here through the power of your word and your spirit, delighting in renewed grace and mercy. Let it be what greets us today, and let it be what we leave with here today. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your awesome name. Amen. So there's a, a long-running joke around my house that surrounds my wife. She's not here today. So let's just go. We can talk about whatever we want to. Uh, she is like the best. Like she's a great partner. She's optimistic about everything in her life. Uh, she wants to try new things all the time. And she believes uh, that there are a great number 
of hidden talents in her that just need to be discovered. And so she just likes to participate in new things. And so uh, one day she decided that she was going to play the guitar. This was something that she was going to start, uh, which I, would, I don't have, I'm not opposed to it at all. Right? I, I applaud that desire, except for there's a little bit of cynicism in me because uh, we went through a phase where she was learning the piano that lasted about a year. She's not on the worship team yet for a reason. Um, right? I'm a realist. That gets me in trouble. And so here we go, guitar. And so she decides that she's going to download a guitar app on her phone. She's going to learn how to play the guitar through an app, uh, which is a great idea. She gets a free trial. Here's the problem. Not once. Not one lesson did we make it through. A lot of optimism. But, and then the problem with that is we signed up for a free trial of a guitar app to teach you how to play the guitar through your phone, but we didn't cancel the free trial. And so months later down the road, we realized that we paid $99 for a guitar app that was no good to us, right? And so it would be funnier for me, right, if the allure of a free trial wasn't just so enticing that I have myself not encountered such folly. Watching a movie on Amazon by signing up for a free trial and then forgetting to cancel the seven-day free trial and getting charged for it. Or I need this fantasy football advice right now and then not having the fortitude to cancel it. And here's the thing. I know, I know that I'm not the only one in this room that have fallen for such a folly. We, over the last few weeks, have talked about church life and faith and how consumerism has shaped and even perversed aspects of our church life and our faith. Consumerism is this belief that satisfaction and fullness will come to me in my life by greater proportions of what I want and what I desire in my life, me getting what I want. And the idea of a free trial is the zenith, the pinnacle of consumerism, because it says to you that you can try this, you can see if you like it, and it doesn't even have to cost you a cent. Participate, check it out, it doesn't even cost you anything. It's free. Free, 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 free. And it's free. And this sort of desire, these sort of Realities get ingrained to us. They become entrenched with us. They are taught within us to a degree that we don't really, truly understand why we are motivated to do the things that we do. We don't understand sometimes that we have been taught to be consumers and to have consumer minds. And so here's what can become tragic in all of that. Because when we are so focused on ourselves, whether we realize this or not, it robs us of fully tasting the wholeness of Christ, the joy of surrender, the beauty of community, and the peace that comes to those whose spirit is poor. The church, too many, has become a free trial a long, extended, free trial where I can glean all the benefits I want without it ever costing me a cent. 
And here's what's better about the church being a free trial. Like it can never expire. Like there's nobody beating down the doors to get you to pay something or ask you to give something. You can just keep getting what you want, when you want it, where you want it, as long as you want it. And when you don't, you just don't come. You just don't pray. You just don't show the love of Christ in my heart and to others. But it's there when we need it, just in case. I've talked to several people in my life that have conveyed to me that, Steve, all I want is to get in the very last seat of the last row of heaven. That's all I want. To them, their faith is about getting eternity. And that would be beautiful if one's heart was humble and grateful and saying, all I want is to see Jesus someday. I don't care if it's a thousand feet away or one foot away. I just, I just want to be with him. Like if that was somebody's sentiment, if that was somebody's heart, I'd be a mess of tears and snot. But that's not the heart around that sort of sentiment. The heart around that sort of sentiment is, I want to do just enough to get to heaven. I want to please Jesus just enough without giving up much in my life. That, that is heartbreaking. Because it's not possible. It's not possible. The modern world has confused this a little bit on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There seems to be an idea that faith has degrees or levels. Degrees or levels like one buying a membership of Costco decides whether they're going to have the basic professional or corporate or executive membership, whatever there is. We see the Christian faith as something that I get to control, that I determine my buy-in. I like the morals that Jesus has, but I'm not kind of for forgiving my enemies. I like the idea of surrender, but look, I'm not coming, becoming that Jesus freak guy that has two foster kids and seven adopted kids from seven different nations. Like, that's a bridge too far for me. And so what is concerning to me is that I know our hearts in here. I know most of your hearts in here. I know that there are people in this room that desire to serve the Lord, that desire to live for the Lord, that desire to grow in the Lord. But we have been so persuaded by the allure of consumerism that we don't understand that as long as I treat my faith as something I get to control, that I get to determine, I will never be the sort of lifelong faithful follower of Jesus that my heart so readily desires. Because Jesus tells us pretty straight up here in Luke 14 that you can't have him without a cost. There are no second-level followers of Jesus. There is no realm where I can just believe but never behave like a follower of Jesus. There's degrees of maturity, but not degrees 
and levels of buy-in. You're either a disciple or you're not. And so this is the big idea for today. The big idea today is that quiet belief is easy. Flourishing faith is costly. For believers today, these words in Luke 14 are some of the toughest words that Jesus could speak. What do we do with them? How do we handle them? He has a crowd that is following him, and he turns to them seeking to determine who is going to be his disciples. And he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't lower the bar. He says, hate your mother and father, your wife, your children, your brother, your sister, yes, even your own life. He says, carry your cross. And lastly, he says, give up all of your possessions. Renounce all that you have. Those are three simple commands. But maybe the most difficult commands that we could ever hear. Jesus' words don't just sound black and white. They are black and white. It's all or nothing. We are either in or we're out. And those words are not likely the first thing that come to our mind when we think about our relationship with Jesus and what faithfulness means in Christ. We don't often talk about the demands and sacrifices required of us in this Christian life. We like to think about his love. We like to think about the fact that God is for us. We like to think about the benefits that come with our life of faith. And so what do we do with these demands and expectations that come to us in Scripture today? Are they good news? And I suspect the first temptation that we have is to soften the text or to reinterpret these ideas to fit better into our lives. That temptation, however, is just another symptom of a consumeristic society that infects much of our culture and our church. Too often, church and faith life is treated like a giant buffet where we simply take as much of what we like and leave behind what we don't like, what's too hard to swallow, what we disagree with, or what does not fit our personal opinions and beliefs. But that's not how discipleship is portrayed in Scripture. And to the degree that we have done that, we have deceived ourselves and one another. Sometimes we need to have demands and expectations placed on us. Good parents know this idea. It's why you say to your kids, eat your vegetables. It's good for you. Or why we say around my house, your sister is not your maid. You can do that yourself. It's good for you. It's why you convey to your kids to study hard, to work hard, to find good friends, to listen to wise advice, to do your chores. We put those demands and expectations on our children because we love them and we want them to grow and we want them to thrive. And that is what our good God does here. His demands and his expectations call us to be different, to be fully alive, to be like him. Crowds have gathered around Jesus since the very beginning of his ministry. To them, Jesus was the new buffet line. He offered to them healing and exorcisms and teachings and hopes and life and good news and bread and freedom and new vision. 
He had what those around him who were gathered around him wanted, and they pressed in on him. They couldn't get enough of him. The crowds went from just a few to hundreds to thousands, but something changes in this scripture. They are no longer just gathering. Now they are traveling with Jesus. And in these words, we hear that there is more to discipleship than simply traveling with Jesus. Discipleship is more than grazing at the buffet of divine life. That life cannot be bought, but it will cost us everything we have. Hate your family, your own life, carry the cross, give up your possessions. Those three things, the cost of discipleship, shape the life and ministry of Jesus, and they are to shape ours as well. Jesus is not asking us to do something that he didn't do. To the contrary, he makes it possible for us to do what he did. And so if we look in scripture, we might say, well, how did Jesus hate his parents? We remember that when Jesus was 12, he gets lost in Jerusalem. Not he doesn't get lost. His parents think he is lost. And so they go searching for him. And they find him and they say, child, how could you have treated us like this? Your father and I, we've been searching everywhere with great anxiety for you. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, why are you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? In that moment, Jesus hates Mary and Joseph. He sets his relationship with them below his relationship with God. This is not an emotional, feeling-based hate that we tend to think of today. For Jesus, hating another is about reordering relationships and loyalty. Jesus is not rejecting the love of Mary and Joseph. He's not rejecting their presence. This isn't about rejection. It's about new priorities. For the disciple, no one and no relationship can take precedence over our relationship with Jesus. Not father, not mother, not wife, not children, not brother, not sister, not life itself. We don't disdain them. We just love less. That's what the Greek word for hate means, love less. It's not the ideology that we put on the word hate today. And in a sense, Jesus hated his own life. He carried the cross and gave precedence to his Father's will and our salvation. Again, this is about priorities. He set aside his will, his preferences, in favor of love for and obedience to God. What possessions did Jesus have? The birds and the animals of this world had more possessions than Jesus. Jesus says, Foxes have homes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Again, Jesus is giving primacy to his relationship with God over his relationship with things. It's a question of priorities. And Jesus is asking us to do what he did to be who he was. That is what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is a learner one who learns to live and act and speak like their teacher. The disciple integrates the teacher's life and teachings into their own life. No one, no cost, or no thing is to take precedence 
over or interfere in our relationship with Jesus. Nothing is more important because it is our relationship that, with Jesus that shapes, defines, determines, and characterizes all of our other relationships, all of the aspects of our lives, who we are, what we say, and what we do. Discipleship is learning to be and live like Jesus. And it ultimately unifies our life. So often in this world, we live fragmented, compartmentalized lives, where we have a work life, a home life, a family life, an internet life, recreational life, civic life, a political life, a church life. This fragmentation allows us to place each of those different aspects of our life as the priority of our life, depending on where we are, who we are with, and what we are doing. That fragmentation is one more symptom of a consumer-oriented, buffet-driven world. Jesus demands and expects all of that to change. There can be only one priority And it is to inform and shape the whole of who we are and what we do. And think about the implications of that. Think about if the whole of what Jesus was here to do was to shape who we are and what we do. It means that we will be the same person, the same person with the same ethics, the same values, the same beliefs, the same practices, regardless of where we're at, who we're with, and what we're doing. It means politics is no longer governed by a party agenda or loyalty, but loyalty to our commitment to the gospel in Christ himself. It means that personal opinions and preferences give way to love of neighbor and love of enemy. Imagine how that would change. That one thing would change our discourse. How would that change our content and our comments on social media in our private lives, in our public lives. It means business is not a capitalistic venture to gain money, power, or leverage over another, but it's a resource for care and support and satisfaction in human living. It means that the environment is not a commodity that is used and polluted and stripped a sacred gift that is entrusted to our care, a gift that reveals God's own beauty and holiness. It means everything we say, do, choose, and are arises from and reveals our life and love for Christ. To live like that is to incur cost. It is to make sacrifice. And we shouldn't be surprised that it does. We know sacrifice is important to so many different areas of our life. We study for years to gain an education. We work long hours and weekends to have successful careers. We give our time and our money and our opportunities to make sure that our kids can go to camps and be in their sporting events and activities. We sacrifice dessert 
for healthy diets. We sacrifice sleeping in to work out. We know how to make sacrifices. We know how to pay a cost. And we do it because those things are important, vital to who we are. They are priorities to us. And there's nothing wrong with doing those things. Those things are part of good and healthy living. But we cannot avoid the obvious question that it leads to. Why is it that in our faith, we look to make convenient sacrifices at most? What cost are we willing to pay? And what sacrifices are we willing to make to be a disciple of Jesus? And look, I don't know what the answer is for you. I know that the answer will be different for all of us, but it will mean a reordering of our priorities. And so to end, I'm going to give you one place that I think we could start. One place that we can start. Most of our modern living revolves around us asking questions like, how do I do this? What do I do now? Tell me what to do. It is a rhythm that is so easy and so comfortable that we don't really consider that there might be another way to approach life. Life for us is about training. It's about getting better at what we do. It's about getting more knowledge in our fields. It's about learning to adapt in life's twists and turns. And often we take that mentality in our faith. And for many of us, we don't know how to grow and mature in our faith or how to live faithfully because we don't know what to do. And we are waiting for somebody to tell me what to do. We want pastors and friends and leaders, tell me what to do. We want our Bible to give us practical insights on what we should do in our life. But being a disciple doesn't come with you being proficient in the ins and outs of a life that is productive and impactful. Discipleship doesn't bring to us the sort of instructions that we so badly want. But what being a disciple does is it teaches you that in every moment of your life, there is a God who stands worthy of your praise worthy of your worship, worthy of your hope, worthy of your joy, worthy of your sacrifice. It takes the focus off of me and what God could bring to me and what God could give to me, and it puts it on what I can give to God. There are arguably, well, I should say, there are 43 kings in the Old Testament, 43 kings that preside over a united and divided kingdom of Israel. And of those 43 kings, there are, without argument, seven kings that are good. Seven kings. And there are four others that are, yeah, they're okay. And so we have 11 kings of 43 kings. Or how many? 43. 11 of 43 that are good to, eh, they're pretty good. That means there are 32 terrible kings in our Old Testament. And do you know what separates the good ones from the bad ones? And this is probably a little bit of an oversimplification, but it does explain in simple terms the heart of the matter. 
What separates the good ones from the bad ones is devotion. They all have direction. They all have purpose. They all have cause. They all have desires. They all have wants. Very few of them have devotion. Very few of them worship God. Life is not about the size of your conviction, the reach of your impact, the worthiness of your cause, or the degree of your rightness. It is about the depth of your worship. It's the depth of your worship. So if there's one place to start as believers in counting the cost, it is to sacrifice to God our need to make this faith about us. Look, the Bible isn't about you. We treat it as if it's some self-help book trying to, to help us find practical wisdom and insights in life. The Bible is the story of God. It's the story of God. Don't read it looking for insights. Let its pages reveal to you the size, the power, the beauty of God that leads you into deeper worship of who he is. Your life is not about you. Don't approach your life thinking about how can I live out the morals of Jesus in my living and working. Instead, give your living and working to God and say, Lord, how can I serve you in this? How can I honor you in these things? Look, your kids, they're not yours. Your future is not yours. Your plans are not yours. If we don't surrender our lives to God as a living sacrifice, the cost of, of, of discipleship will always be too high. Because if you see your life and your work as yours, following Jesus will always come with an immense cost. But if you see life and work as God's, it would only follow that the only logical conclusion for sustained joy, hope, and flourishing in this life is to give it to him. Where does our Father, where does our relationship with Jesus sit on our priorities? How deep is our worship? Let the words of Scripture convict our hearts for our good. This is the big idea today. Quiet belief is easy. Flourishing faith is costly. And let's take some time to remember why, why we sacrifice, why we surrender, why we are joyfully giving away our lives to the Lord as we come around the table of communion. It is only because of the risen Christ that we can die. It is only because of the risen Christ that we can come together as a community of hopeful but broken people who seek to love what he loved, to live as he lived, to do what he taught, and strive to be his faithful servants in this our time and place. And so in this meal, we remember Jesus. We remember his promise. We remember the price that he paid for who he was and what he said and what he did for us. On the night before Jesus died, he took a loaf of bread. He gave thanks and he broke it and he said, take and eat. Whenever you do this, remember me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup and he poured it out saying, this is the new covenant, remember me. Today, we do that. Today, we remember his love 
his life, his friendships, his teaching, his dying, and his rising of life. And in this shared meal together, we proclaim our shared faith. And this is our proclamation. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Can we join together in making that our shared proclamation together? Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. The body of Christ, the bread of life, represented in the cracker, the lifeblood of Christ, the cup of blessing, represented in his juice. These are the gifts of God for God's people, and they are good gifts. And so if you're in here today and you're of faith, if you're of the family of God, you're welcome at the table. So let us spend a few moments here reflecting on the size and the beauty and the power of our God, asking forgiveness where we have fallen short. And when you are ready, as the song plays, partake at your own time, and then feel free to stand and worship.